Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 206. Ah, this is what, the second podcast in the year? For, no, first podcast in the new year. No, this would be second. Oh, no, you're right. This is the first. This is the first of us recording one in 2020. Yeah. 20, uh, oh, right, because everyone listened in 2020 <laughs> to our yes. last one. We recorded the last one on the 31st. So you finished all your projects, right? All done. Ready to start new ones. Including the brewery, right? Totally. (laughs) No, no. Actually, why don't you give us an update on where the brewery is? So all the brewery brewing pots are all done. Um, I I soldered, silver soldered all the connections on. Um, They seem to be strong and not leaking. Uh, and And I polished them all up so they look all nice and fancy. Um, and I basically been like, I stacked them up like on the floor and kind of figure out how much space you know, need to put between the pots. Cause I'm doing, you know, rigid hard lines between everything. And, you know, the thing with rigid hard lines is you have a bend radius. You can't just, you know, 90 degree a, a tube. And so I, I took, uh, some tubing, half inch stainless tubing, and I put it in my bender, bent it. And so I, I would have like a fit, like a, um, like a, a template, I guess, of a bend. And so I can, I use that to play around with all my spacing. And I ended up finding that like, I need a cart that's like eight feet wide, which is ridiculous. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> eight feet is monster. And you're, and you were planning on welding up an entire thing, right? Yeah. Which building a cart that big is not that bad. Cause I've built stuff that large and larger before a uh, square tubing but it's just like where the hell do i put this thing yeah eight feet is huge yeah it's like oh i have to basically remove a workbench in my garage just to store this thing <laughs> yeah my my uh, cart is five feet long and it's already big yeah um so i've been thinking about uh redoing the setup not just not the I don't have to redo the fittings because all the fittings are in the right spot, but just where, like instead of doing them all spread out, is maybe do a tiered system, or figure out a different optimization in terms of how I put the pots together. Um, so I have to work on that. Are your pots really that big that they demand that much space? Well, it's the fittings. Oh, between them. Between them that take up a lot of space. Right, um, right, right. Because you're doing hard hard tubing. Yeah, and I actually was thinking, like, what if I just took the pots and then wrote, because they, I have all the fittings basically go, uh, like, 90 degrees to each other. Hmm. I'm like, what if I took the pots and then turned them 45? Yeah. So it's, like, triangular tubes between them and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And then I that could just dust really them a nice. lot closer. Yeah, yeah. That would look awesome, man. Um, it'd be weird, because all the handles would be weird, but you're not using the handles anyways, because you're not lifting these pots up. Right. They yeah. They they stay still. You know, one of the things I I kind of want to do this, but I'm a little bit afraid because it's a lot of money. And it, I mean, the money's already spent. It would it would be a lot of money wasted if I screwed it up. But I, I would love to make my pots permanent on my uh, brew rack, such that like you never pick them up, even for cleaning. So it would be awesome to drill a one inch hole threaded hole in the bottom of them and put a valve out the bottom of them and it's just like a dump tube so you clean everything and you open the dump tube out the bottom of them and bam everything's gone yeah i was thinking about that for for at least like my my boil pot because mm-hmm. that's the one that always gets nasty right the other ones are pretty easy to clean yeah um and i was actually looking at some people's setups on kind of doing the same thing i was doing and they actually put a hinge on their mash tun. And so you basically take the mash tun and it just unhinges from your cart. And it stays attached oh, to your it, cart. Oh, it, 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 it's like an arm that you can tilt it with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the, mash about- tun, the mash tun is the, the big pot that basically all the grains go in. And then you put like... 40 pounds of water on the grains and it and like at the end of it you have like 60 pounds worth of stuff in there yeah and yeah. it's one of those that's like i was actually originally planning on just putting like a little 
I was like, how the hell do I get the grains out of this pot if it's hard lined in? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, okay. One of the the way I want to do it eventually, because I do all of. I have a nice mash tun, but I but I put a mash bag in it to just yes. hold all the grains. I'm gonna hook a um, a, a winch to my uh, to the ceiling of my uh, uh, basement, such that I can winch the entire thing up and let it drain and just hold it above the mash tun and just because you don't ever want to squeeze the mash bag because you release a bunch of tannin just like squeezing a tea bag. See, some people do that though. I've never have done. I never did that before. Yeah, and yeah, I was, I was asking if uh, if you were going to do that. I guess not. No, I, I want to. I want to just like hold it and suspend it above and let as much drain out as possible. And you know, with a bag that big, it it takes twenty minutes to get the last drop out of it. Yeah, so that, that's what I was going to do on my cart. Is I was going to weld a basically a little gantry crane. Yeah, or not not a gantry, a like uh, an arm, arm crane. swing arm thing. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, yeah. But I'm like, this thing is going to be trying. It's going to be like a whole operation, yeah, to do this. Yeah. And I'm like, so I'm I'm thinking about trying to reset stuff up, like maybe try to do a tiered system if it will work. I'm probably going to play with it after the podcast. Look at what other people have done. Like I actually found someone that pretty much built a similar setup as mine. Yeah, that was a a flat tier one. They called a one tier system with three pumps and. He's using actually like flexible hoses in between, but he uh, just has them with those. Um, they have a special name for them. It's it's the clamps, the hose clamps that are are pinch. A pinch. They're pinched. They're not worm clamps. Um, it starts with an O. I'm not sure what you're talking about. Like Os Oska hose hmm. clamps. Well, while you're looking that up, something that came to mind, dude. You should totally do this. I love the idea of having a a swing arm on the edge of your brew rat, uh, cart that has the winch on on it, such that you can winch up your mash bag, let it sit, and then it rotates out, and you can then just dump everything into a trash can that's also on your uh, cart. So your cart goes from eight feet to ten feet because it has an extra two foot trash can on the side. <laughs> it's like it's it's O E T I K E R. Otiker, O T I K E R, Otiker clamps. Oh, okay, yeah, the uh, yeah, those are those. Um, use that special tool in it, and it kind of puts a uh, like a divot in it, and, and it's yeah. a permanent clamp. Yeah, and yeah. so I use those on like automotive stuff all the time. So I was going to use those back when I was going to use silicone hoses for everything, mm -hmm. um, mainly because like hose clamps always had that like sharp piece of metal and that you know that sticks out from them and i've always cut my fingers on those so <laughs> i'm like i'm never using those ever again on anything i am like near yeah so i'd rather like basically because i have a tool that removes those as well oh okay. it basically just cuts the the little ear off right and it's like i'd rather just have a bunch of these and just go through them than have worm clamps ever again <laughs> <laughs> I've cut my fingers so much on them. Harbor Freight has a kit of worm clamps that come with a plastic um, uh, knob yeah. on them. They, it, it looks like a wing nut on, uh, end to a uh, worm, I don't know, clamp. And uh, that kit is like $2.50 or something ridiculous for a bunch of them. So uh, I, I just buy those on occasion and just use them. They're really really super easy especially if you if you need to take it off and clean your hoses that that wins especially for the cost so yeah i gotta i gotta figure out how i'm going to organize it now and um hopefully i can compact it a bit more and because that's like a eight feet by two foot by probably about four and a half feet tall my only problem with tiered systems is Usually your brewery, your not brewery, um, your boil pot is really low to the ground, and so you have to lift it up to drain it into your fermentator. Right, right, or pump it because you have three pumps. Yeah, or pump it. Yeah. So I've never <laughs> been a big fan of that, but um, we'll have to see. I'll, I'll start playing around with it and figure out uh 
how to because an eight foot cart is not going to do it. It's like I kind of want to make it like I think that's the next thing is like how compact can I make this setup? Yeah, yeah. So. The one thing that I don't like about gravity systems is just you have to have a ladder to to yeah. do things. Um, I mean, yeah, you got pumps and things like that, but you still want to be able to see in the pot, and it's yeah. kind of annoying because you end up with a nine foot tall three-tier system and they're yeah they're great because their footprint is like two foot by two foot by nine foot you know yeah. <laughs> but like it's well that's the problem is my garage is only eight feet tall right right so i can't do that either or that tall of one hmm. and all my pots are like 19 inches tall yeah so they're, they're tall pots so so yeah that that's that um hmm. hopefully by next week i have a plan I kind of want to be welding the cart by this weekend. Um, nice. We'll see what happens. So I have to get to the metal metal fab, not metal fab. The uh, metal um, yard. Metal yard. Yeah. There's a place called like Rose Metal, Rose Metals over by work. I'll probably go over there. They seem to cater more towards like smaller people. I went over there once and they didn't mind me just walking around looking at all the cutoffs. So <laughs> all the rusted cutoffs. Yeah, all the rusted cutoffs. So there's a couple of places uh, in Denver that that um, are right around the street from um, my work that that they they're like family metal businesses and things like that. And they're <laughs> and they they're they're similar to that where it's just like they have a lot of their metal sitting on like racks in the in the backyard, and you can just go yeah. check it out. I like yeah, that. Go check it out. Um, and I was over there, and their their square tubing was like half the price of like everywhere else I was kind of looking so that's awesome um, mainly because they act they they will sell you one piece at that price instead of like will you go to a normal metal yard they're like well we'll give you that price if you buy like a hundred sticks yeah yeah they want to do it by weight <laughs> yeah well they're not set up the most metal yards aren't set up for the guy coming with his jeep in a trailer no <laughs> no they're not expecting that no. And then if you try to buy steel from like Home Depot, it's like fifteen times the cost. <laughs> yeah, fifteen times the cost. And, and it's like, oh, they have one stick and you need like eight. Oh yeah. Yeah. One <laughs> stick and it's not the right size. <laughs> yes. Uh, I hate buying materials at like Home Depot and stuff like that. Because you know you're being robbed. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the metal department for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wood's not that bad. Not uh, Plywood there is freaking expensive, too. Well, yeah. I mean, most, like, 2x4s and stuff are still, what, 2 Yeah, uh, 2x4s are pretty cheap, yeah. They're cheap. Yeah. But, yeah, the uh, plywood, I've, and it's always, like, the plywood's always crappy, too. <laughs> There's so many footballs in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully next week I have a more brewery update. Um Maybe the cart being done. Have a napkin drawing for us. Yes. I'll, I'll at least have a drawing of what sys tiered system. Because my original idea, when I drew it up, I didn't even think about the fittings or anything. Like how long, like a, because it's got the fitting on the, the half inch NPT fitting on the pot. And it has to go into a, a ball valve. And then it has to go into a fitting. And then it has to go into a compression fitting. And it's just like this, it grows to like eight inches of fittings. Yeah, fast. Yeah, really quickly. And you're like, well, that's, that's, now I need like 10 inches. And then plus like the radius bend of the hard line. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, well, hmm. You know, it might be also I go look into, instead of doing a radius bend, is do a 90 elbow uh, stainless and then go straight down because that'll be a lot more compact too hmm yeah um you know uh i've seen before uh let me think about this you could have two pots stacked on top of each other and then one kind of like parallel to the side yeah i've seen that those two yeah yeah that 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 might be that might be worthwhile or you could potentially have it such that well you never you don't ever want to take this apart you want it to be a permanent fixture I was yeah. going to say maybe a cart that like expanded and then you could set it up on brew day, but that's exactly what you don't want. Yeah, that's all I don't want. I want to be able to wheel this thing out, hose it down to get all the dust off. 
Yeah. And then brew, be done with brewing, throw Roll in the cleaner, in. run the cleaner, and then put it away. Right, right. So we'll see. We'll see if that actually happens. <laughs> <laughs> my, my brother, who also home brews, thinks I'm crazy. So <laughs> the worst case is that doesn't happen and we just make it a system that breaks down. Yeah. So it's not really any loss besides like the tubing I get, that stainless tubing, which wasn't that expensive. Yeah. Because um, I bought it in a big coil. It's, it's the funniest thing. It's like you buy like 50 feet of you're trying to buy uh, straight. Because last time we talked about this, I was going to buy a half inch straight tubing and eight foot sticks. Yeah. And those are expensive. Like the per foot is like a couple bucks per foot. And but if it's coiled up, it's a lot cheaper. If it's coiled up, it's like a quarter of the price. Damn. And so I bought a coil, and then I bought a a tube straightener because you got to straighten it so you can actually put bends back into it. <laughs> Have you already straightened it? Yeah, I, I I took it uh over this weekend and I put it in the straightener and I basically um the straightener got you put you on a drill mm. and so you can just go and suck it in and so you. You do about eight feet at. I did it eight feet at a time, and then I just zipped it with the uh, with the um, angle grinder. Yeah, angle grinder with a cutoff wheel, just zipped right through it, and then made like six or seven eight foot sticks, something like that, uh, which should be plenty. Yeah, and then you just run it through the straightener a couple more times to you know get all the that's uh, cool bends out of it. I didn't know it was that easy. Yeah, it was actually pretty pretty nice. So, um, and then the other thing I've been working on is, of course, Pinatar, the pinball platform. Um, the PCBA is apparently done. It's sitting on my workbench at work. So it was not done before the podcast, but so hopefully by next week I have it tested. Nice. That'd be cool. You'll have it tomorrow yeah. morning. Yes. And then, um, I, I got ordered all the, uh, through hole parts from Mauser. And they should be here tomorrow as well. So I'll start soldering up all the through-hole. Uh, mainly because the the through-hole, like, the lead time was, like, an extra two weeks to get built. Because there's a lot of through-hole. And I'm like, well, I could probably spend, like, an afternoon on a Saturday just soldering yeah. by myself. Honestly, um, I really... You, you, I, I love soldering like that. It's just fun and it's therapeutic. And if I have a project like that, I'll just... I'll get my folding table out. I'll put it in my living room in front of the TV and I'll just solder for a whole evening. And it's just... I don't know. It's fun. I like that. I actually was thinking, like, maybe coming into the fab on a Saturday and running the selective solder for four boards. <laughs> just spending all that time programming for that. Well, it's not... Not hard to program. It's yeah. that uh, drag drop kind of interface. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, every time I've had those same thoughts where it's just like, I'll just come in on a Saturday morning and do it. And then like five o'clock on the Saturday, I'm still sitting there like messing with around it. with stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe if it's running Saturday. on Saturday. So like someone's actually already using it. Hmm. And then before their shift is over, like before they turn the machine off, I'm like, let's run these four boards real quick. Slip them some bucks and just yeah. throw it in there. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, so Steven, what have you been up to? So I have uh, I got a funny story to start off with. Um, so this week we had at work, we had a power supply go out on us. Uh, it shorted and made some, uh, made some smoke. And uh, one of the operators who was using it at the time, uh, it was in our testing department, um, they said that the LED for the negative 12-volt rail went off, and then they heard a loud, uh, high-pitched squeal from it. I'm like, okay, well, that means the switch mode supply is just freaking out, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, then, the, and then that was it, like, done. And this was the second power supply that had done this. Um, and, and we did some investigation as to what was happening, and uh, there was just some some faults and some errors that were from a bunch of different angles, but we know what caused it now, but we have two bad power supplies and uh, it was just like, ah, damn, I, we don't want to buy new power supplies. So I cracked them open and looked at the boards and um, what, 
what kind of sucks is on these boards, there's two regulators and go figure there's a plus 12 volt rail and a minus 12 volt rail. So, you know, la dee da. Mm-hmm. Both of the regulators have their part numbers sanded off. Like the, the manufacturer ah. didn't want us to know what regulators they use. But it's the regulators are in like, I don't know how to describe it. I guess. Okay. So, you know, D packs, they have like the big pad and two legs. Mm-hmm. So think of a D pack that looks like a D pack, but it has seven legs on it. And I think those are called like D pack sevens or something like that. Yeah. There's something so or TO two sixty three dash seven, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and there's, and, and when you see a weird package like that, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is Texas instruments. Texas Instruments is the only person or the only entity that uses that to my knowledge for power packages. So I looked at it, I was like, okay, so TI. So I start like sniffing around TI for a while and I find some stuff that kind of matches. Uh, and I start like p- uh, doing pinouts and stuff. And uh, it matches really well on the positive 12 volt. Like it's one to one. I found the family of regulators and their mm-hmm. switch mode regulators. So like everything lines up, and even the values of resistors and caps that were around these things were lining up with some of the data sheets, like stuff. the reference yeah. designs in the in the uh, data sheets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, then I I looked at the negative twelve volt rail because the negative twelve volt rail is the one that's bad, and I start pinning it out, and it's super weird because the way it looks like. The ground is the output, like literally the pin that's in the data sheets of the regulators I found is it says ground in the data sheet. But if you look on the board and the layout that somebody did, that's connected directly to the output. And so I'm like, I don't know, this is weird. And I couldn't like rectify that. And I remembered a video that I watched a long time ago from Dave Jones and uh with the eev blog and i i tried looking up the episode before this but i i couldn't find what it was a long time ago dave jones had a video where he was discussing how do you basically deal with chips that somebody has sanded off the top and there's a trick i didn't think this would work it straight up worked you spit on the chip like full on like take a big old wad of spit and stick it on the chip and uh, if they haven't done like a phenomenal job with sanding it off, like if they haven't taken like a ton of meat off the chip, then the part number will start to like just like glow through the spit. I'd, and and it probably like has nothing to do with spit. It I mean it's liquid, but but still I think it's funny that Dave Jones was like just spit on it. So <laughs> I tried that and I put it under the microscope and Wah! like all the numbers like just appeared there like straight up and. Um, I found that it was, it had like very clearly the national semiconductor symbol was on the front of it, which national semiconductor is, is owned by TI. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's still like a TI thing, but I, I went and looked up the part number with the national semiconductor data sheet, like in one of the older ones, and they have a, a special app note on how to use this thing to get negative voltages. And the way you do it is you use the ground as an output and you rearrange everything. So totally found the chip by spitting on it and it, and it worked. So thanks a lot, Dave Jones. Like I never thought I would use that and it totally worked. So that was a fun little thing. Yeah. Kind of sucks though. Cause I mean like those regulators are like six bucks each, but uh, I, we're going to, I think they're going to arrive tomorrow, the new part. So I can just solder those on. And I mean, but how much is a new power supply? Oh, like a hundred. So it's yeah, yeah, six bucks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like ah, man, that sucks. I mean, they're they're gonna be a pain in the butt to uh, desolder because they uh, have a huge thermal pad, like mm-hmm. measured in inches. So uh, I'm gonna have to get the IR thing out and probably multiple people with multiple irons and stuff. But it also took out a couple of the diodes around it, but they didn't huh. scratch off the diode part numbers. Oh, the little identification marks. Well, I, uh, these these were big diodes. Their SMA package. Oh, so they actually ha- do have a laser marking on. Yeah, them? and they just straight up have their part number right on it. So those those oh, are nice cool. and easy. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of um, back when I worked in Oklahoma on on 900 megahertz radio stuff. Mm. Um, so Oklahoma, for people who don't know, has lots of lightning storms. Not as much as like uh, 
Florida, but um, has quite a bit in tornadoes as well. And our radios um, were connected. You can't ground the radios because the how the code electrical code works for these because they're, they're on pipelines. So, and the pipelines are are cathodically coupled. I think that's why how you say it. Mm-hmm. I mean that they run a frequency through a voltage frequency through them to prevent them from rusting the pipelines. Hmm. And and since they're in the ground, you can't ground. So because if you if you ran a ground rod into the dirt, you'd basically effectively ground the pipeline to that ground line. And so your your cathod- I think it's cathodic is what they call it. Ca- cathodic, that, that, cathodic maybe. Yeah, I don't. It's something like it's yeah. cathode is what it's derived from, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um. But uh, so you can't ground it. So basically, when your radio gets struck by lightning, there's nothing you can do. Your radio just goes out. <laughs> <laughs> um, like there, we try to rest like lightning arresters, all that stuff. Basically, the lightning has nowhere to go, so it just blows up your radio. Huh. And. So I started looking into, we had like, like when I got there, we had a whole cabinet full of blown radios because basically after a lightning storm, like one or two will go down and a mechanic will go out there and just swap a radio out. And these are like about a grand $1,200 radios because hmm. they're like class one div one radios um, that go inside these electrical boxes. And so I started, I took one apart and started poking around because like you would power it up and I had in my office I had a little tiny base station I made just to test stuff and the radio would come on you just couldn't get any data through it because like it had a a, uh, RS-232 front end that that your meter basically would talk to and then the radio would broadcast out so you would actually pick up the radio the radio section was working but the RS-232 section wasn't working you couldn't communicate through it and so I started poking around in it, and um, one of the buses that's like the one we don't use communicated just fine. But the uh, I think it was like the RS-485 section worked fine, and that section we don't hook up to. So I'm like, okay, that signal path is working, but for some reason the 232 side's not working. And I, I poked around, and there was a chip there, um, and I, couldn't, I didn't know what it was. And... Because it, the whole board was uh, conformally coded. So this mm. is getting kind of your, your thing. Yeah. And I had to, like, chip off the conformal coding because it was, it was a really uh, uh, hard coding, I guess. Chipped it off. And then I used the spit method, too. Nice. Because uh, once you chip it off, like, you still couldn't see anything on it. And I kind of just, like, wetted it and then looked at it. Uh, I didn't have a, a microscope. I just used my phone. Uh, the the camera and just zoomed in on it and the part number was an ESD part so it was designed to hit like 15 kilovolts and so basically lightning was just zapping that part just trashing the part yeah and so I, I went on Mauser bought uh, a spare part put it in and the radio started working perfectly <laughs> fine and basically that company was sending those off to get repaired for 400 bucks a pop and this is a 15 cent part. Yeah. And so um, I really wish we were able to, I wasn't there long enough. To, basically my goal was just repair those there and then like reconform a code them. Um, but I, we ended up not doing, didn't have time to do that uh, before I started, I moved back down to Houston. But um, I also wanted, instead of doing that is like to protect the radio in the field is build a little board that just had another one of those chips. <laughs> Just in between, because nice. it clearly it could it prevented anything upstream of it dying, right? Yeah. Um, but I couldn't get any answers because like no one knew like what the legality of that because this is a class one div one environment, right? It's like okay, do we have to make a class one div one like protector circuit or something? Um, oh, we had that guy on uh, a couple months back about that. I should have asked him then. Hmm. Oh, you know, well. but if you chipped away the conformal coding, then you've you've taken you've destroyed the class one div one rating. Yeah, so, so that's the thing is you'd 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 have to send it back out to get, or you'd have to conformal code it yourself or get it recoded. Yeah, um, somewhere else, because um, that's clearly what the person who was 
doing it for 400 bucks was doing <laughs> regooping it yeah um yeah it's interesting what what lightning can do to things in class one div one i can't is it you might be class one div you have to do the actual lightning test at the uh, testing centers where they they zap it with 15k or however much it is well a class one div one's just like the environment of like because there's like can be constant like vapor exposure for like natural gas and stuff right right it can only contain so much energy um yeah. in the circuit at any one point in time yeah, I can't remember which which one it was. We had to do it for one of our um, products. So but we never... It. Our, well, that was the thing. Our company that I was working for didn't build any hardware or anything. Hmm. And so when I was like coming up with this idea, everyone there was just like, I have no idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> we just bought products and then put them into stuff. Right. Um, Technical installation. It, it was a pipelining company. So, you know, it would have been more interesting... I might have stuck around if our company actually like designed stuff, but mm. that wasn't that kind of company. So, you know, the fact that like battery monitoring stuff out in the field was like foreign to them. And I implemented that with the radios because <laughs> in, in Oklahoma, everything gets really dusty because that red dust gets yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And it would get on solar panels. Doesn't make solar panels work when they're dusty. <laughs> and so the batteries would eventually die. And then you get a call at four o'clock in the morning to wake up and go replace the battery out in the field and then wipe the, the solar panel off. And after doing that two times, you're pretty fed up doing it. And uh, it's like, oh, these radios have an analog input. I'm going to put that on the battery. <laughs> and then just pull the analog input. Oh, now I know when the battery's going to die. So you can replace it during the day. Nice. So. Spit tricks. <laughs> Spit tricks leading to uh, dying batteries in, in red dust. Yes. So uh, when I got home from work today, I had a nice little package sitting on uh, my front porch. Um, I, 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 get, I was really super excited about this. It's kind of mundane. But I, I found a, a really nice resistor kit on uh, Amazon. We'll... Uh, We'll post the link to this, but um, I've I've had gosh kits of resistors for years and years, and I've finally gotten to the point now where I've either lost them or dumped out the wrong value or whatever so much that I'm finally like, you know what? I need to get some new resistors. So the other day I was uh, searching on Amazon for resistors, and I found a kit. Man, I wish this was available when I was younger, but. It's 3,350 resistors, all 1% quarter watt resistors uh, in 134 different values. So it's, a, it's 25 each of 134 values. That's 133 more than I need. <laughs> 10K, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you digital guys. Uh, you got to pull that value of zero, man. Well, if you're breadboarding stuff or if you're like working in the analog domain, it helps to have a bunch of different values. And uh, I say I wish I had this when I was a kid just because, man, this is so nice. And the resistors I was buying or the resistor kits I bought when I was a kid, like 10% resistors are what you could find in like mm -hmm. eight different values. Woo! And it's just like, oh, man, it was it was hard and um, oh yeah i remember basically like taking resistors and twisting the ends together to make different values oh yeah i probably have some sitting on my desk right now that uh, i have done that uh and i was i was breadboarding something just the other day and i was i was having to make compromises because i had weird values or off values and everything was five percent i believe and i really wish i had one percent and this this whole kit i found on amazon is um 25 dollars so this one $25 kit will set you up with enough to test or build whatever circuit you want. Uh, and for most breadboarding applications, quarter watt is enough. I mean, if you need, if you really need more than a quarter of a watt, then you're probably not going to be breadboarding. So, uh, 
I, I just wanted to showcase that because I'm super excited because after this podcast, I'm going to go and dump all of my old resistors and I'm going to reorganize all of my trays and put all my brand new resistors in place. I, really I like excited. how the box has a resistor chart on it. You know, another thing that I wasn't oh, aware always of there. Uh, that I'm going to have to deal with now, these are all five band resistors and I can really quickly read four band resistors and I know five band resistors are easy too. It's just, I don't have any experience with five band or much experience. So I'm going to have to get good at that. Um, so I guess that's a good thing. But, uh, one, one of the reasons why I even did this is because if I breadboard something, I usually don't reuse those resistors. Um, Hmm. I'm I'm really anal about the way that I do most of my breadboarding stuff. Like if I build a circuit, I'm bending legs of resistors. I'm cutting them to make them as short as possible. Like I do a lot of work to make my breadboards as PCB like as possible because I've just found in the past that I've spent you know, an hour or two making a circuit and it doesn't work the way I want it to. And then I found out that's because I built it the way you see breadboards in pictures all the time with like, you know, wires flying all over the place and resistors like three inches above the <laughs> breadboard. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, if you take your time and you think out your layout and you build everything in chunks, like if you have an inverting op amp configuration, spend time making that really nice like the feedback resistor that goes between two pins on an op amp bend the legs of a resistor such that it stands vertically and put that as close to the op amp as possible like the two holes mm. in the breadboard as close like start using those pcb techniques in breadboards and your breadboard circuits will work really well if you do that and I, I always stick by the old rule of like, if you can make something work well on a breadboard, you can make it work really well on a PCB. And so I will spend the extra 30 minutes or an hour making a really nice circuit on a breadboard. So all that said, most of the time my resistors are, are chopped and cut up by the time they reach my breadboard. So I, I've gotten to the point now where it's like, okay, it's time to restock. So. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, the the one I get is the the little wires that you're using as jumpers. Yeah, because I cut those all the time. Yeah, um, I actually need to get a new pack of those. You know, okay, uh, that, that's another good one. The uh, those resistor jumper kits or whatnot. Those are actually really nice because everything's pre bent to whole pin space size. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, I usually only use two of those colors in there. And so I run out of those really fast. And then I have a yep. ton of these things that are like eight inches long and I don't need yeah, anything. Never that use. Long. Like, <laughs> come on, just give me like a bazillion of the short ones because I mean, I'm trying to make my breadboard circuits compact, uh, but I guess most people don't do it that way. So I, I understand why they would sell it in a bunch of different lengths and stuff. But yeah, th th there's in the kits I have, there's short green ones and short yellow ones. And those are the perfect distance to go from your power rails down to whatever ic circuits you have and uh so i use those all over the place and i run out of them very quickly <laughs> yeah it, they need to sell kits that's just those yeah that would be great i mean yeah you can always make them out of the bigger ones but i would rather just have someone else do it <laughs> yeah just a slap on your board so yeah we'll put that up there if, if anyone cares about resistor kits like i do yep it's so, a cute, cute queen brand. You know, they, on Amazon, the people who sell stuff, like the the names of people, uh, the sellers are, like, it's all over the place, especially yeah, when it comes to electronics. <laughs> or any of these, like, variety pack kind of things. Yeah. Because I buy a lot for automotive, like um, terminal kits mm. and stuff like that. They have weird brand name, quote, brand names like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you even see that stuff creep up at like Fry's Electronics and stuff. If you go to their uh, electronics department, uh, you'll see things where it's like, well, that's a strange name for a company. If Fry's still exists. Yeah. Or Micro Center. Sounds like. So uh, something else I've been working on, I've been talking about this last couple of weeks, is uh, that my, you know, diving into LT 
uh, spice simulation stuff. And uh, I've, I've been having fun with that, and uh, I, I decided to change it up a little bit this week. I actually created a simulation, and I've put it up on my GitHub, and we'll provide a link to it. So if anyone wants to actually check it out, they can go and download it and see some of the simulation stuff that I've been playing with. And uh, as I go further in this, I, I think I'm going to continue to provide little circuits here and there um, that, that show off some uh, capabilities of some stuff. But... Um, a circuit that I was actually breadboarding the other day um, was a uh, op amp full wave rectifier, which can be really useful uh, in analog circuits. And there's some nuances to it if you want it to work properly. So uh, I actually threw together some simulation stuff. And instead of doing just one, I actually put three rectifiers kind of in parallel that are all fed by the same signal. The signal I, I'm feeding these rectifiers is a 10-volt uh, peak-to-peak triangle wave. And then I'm just trying to rectify it. And I chose 20 kilohertz as the input to it because one of the downfalls of using an op-amp as a rectifier is that they're uh, getting it to work at moderate speeds is actually a little bit difficult. And uh, in this... In this simulation, I have three different rectifiers, one using an LM741, which is kind of like the the beginner's op-amp. I remember mm -hmm. using that in college as the, the first circuits we did with op-amps. The second one is a TL072 op-amp, which is a Jelly Bean JFET input op-amp that is used all over the place. And then the last one is uh, an OPA1678. So the main differences between these op amps is that they have different gain, uh, what gain bandwidth product, uh, and they have different slew rates. So the slew rate is basically how fast the output of an op amp can change, and it's measured in volts per microsecond. And then the gain bandwidth product is a measure of uh, what is the maximum frequency that a unity gain will uh, exit the op amp effectively. And so, like, an LM741 has a gain bandwidth product of, I think it's 250 kilohertz. It is really, really slow. And they, the OPA1678 has a gain bandwidth product of 16 megahertz. So, it is significantly faster than the LM741. And then, uh, you know, the, the 741 also has a slew rate of, like, 0.2 volts per microsecond which in the op amp world is really slow also and the opa has i think it's 10 volts per microsecond and the whole the whole thing about this this simulation is if you if you look or if you plot the three outputs of each one of these rectifiers you can see the op amps turning on and off and the speeds at which the the diodes that are inside the uh the circuits have to recover from things so if you're talking about rectifying something that's one hertz or 10 hertz or something, then, you know, a, a, a handful of nanoseconds or even microseconds is a very small portion of your wave. But if even at 20 uh, kilohertz, a few microseconds starts to be a significant portion of your wave. So you want that op amp to be very fast and you want it to be able to switch through the rectifiers really quickly. And it's cool because with the simulation, you can see the speeds of those things. And in the OPA 1678, I even swapped out the diodes from 1N4148s to some key diodes. So it doesn't even, the op amp doesn't have to travel as far. It even has like 50% uh, less travel and you can see the, the speed on it. It's funny because at 20 kilohertz, the LM741 just doesn't work. Like straight up, like <laughs> it's like it's dead. It's completely dead. And then the O seven two and the sixteen seventy eight are actually working pretty well. Um, so yeah, it's 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 kind of neat. And uh, with uh, LT Spice, it's uh, it's fairly easy to sw swap in different gain bandwidth products and and slew rates to see how it's going to affect things. And like I said, I actually breadboarded this up and confirmed these uh the things that i was seeing i was actually working with a tlo 72 and these exact kind of reverse uh recoveries from the diodes i'm getting the same thing in my simulations so it's always nice to get validation like that just like the simulations <laughs>
<laughs> so yeah, if you want to check it out, uh, we'll put a link up to the GitHub where you can download the simulations and uh, you can check it out. And maybe, you know, it'd be fun if somebody wants to try to simulate it and make it better than what I have in here. Uh, if you send that to me, I'll try actually breadboarding it and, and we'll see if we can do it in real life. So, because like the, one of the tricks that I've been doing with this is if you take a triangle wave and you put it through a precision rectifier, you get another triangle wave out of it, mm -hmm. but it's half the amplitude, double the frequency. So if you take that through another op amp of two times gain and you offset it, you can produce an octave. You can take a triangle just through two op amps and get twice the frequency. And you can do that effectively indefinitely you can you can keep doubling your frequency uh in the analog domain and uh so but there's there's a lot of limitations and it's a lot of it's based on what rectifiers you use and what op amps you use in that circuit so it's uh it's fun to be able to simulate it before even doing it because you can't just look at the circuit and be like oh yeah 741 i'll just throw one of those in there like nope it ain't gonna work <laughs> Um, and so kind of jumping off of that, I've been, um, I've actually been working a bit with comparators recently and I kind of love the, in the analog world, when it comes down to these kind of ICs, like comparators and, and op amps, it's not as simple as just like picking one that has the right price and is in the package that you want. Like there's so many characteristics under the hood that you, you can play with to get more, to, to get better performance of what you're looking for. So like with a precision rectifier, you want it to be fast and you want it to have a high slew rate such that it can bounce back from going into saturation and not, because that's effectively what the rectifiers or the, the op amp in the rectifier circuit's doing for half of the wave is it's going into saturation. And um, you want it to be able to snap back very quickly such that it can catch the wave that it's rectifying but with things like comparators that you want a completely different characteristics behind them and and comparators come in both analog and and logic type but i'm i'm talking more about analog here with with comparators if you're looking for precision you care a little bit more about your input offset and your bias currents on that because if you want it to compare at a very specific voltage you want to make sure that your input offset is very low and your bias currents are very low and whatever impedance is driving it is, you know, properly set up such that it doesn't introduce any extra errors on that. Uh, on top of that, with your comparators, something I, I was actually dealing with earlier today, be really mindful about the propagation delay on those. Oh, through your comparator or through your op amp? Through the comparator. Uh, so a lot of comparators are just different versions of op amps like under the hood yeah. they are just an op amp that's uh fine-tuned configured in a certain way yeah and uh so yeah the thing about it is if you don't pay attention to it comparators can actually be kind of slow uh, i was looking at some on mauser earlier today where the propagation delay was in the matter of uh, a few microseconds and if you're if you're trying to do comparators with other analog circuits that also deal with logic. A lot of times logic is a few nanoseconds. And yep. if you're dealing with a, with a, an analog comparator, that's a few microseconds, that's ages longer for your circuit. So yeah, be really careful about that. Um, one of the, yeah, one of the, I, I actually have a, an analog comparator that interfaces with a, a digital and, and the, the and circuit or the and chip that I have has a propagation delay of somewhere in the order of, I think it's five nanoseconds and the comparator is 200 microseconds or no, sorry, not 200 microseconds. It's a lot faster than that. It's a uh, 12 microseconds. And so like, you got to be mindful of like when things are going to happen. Um, so yeah, the, all of those, all of those weird symbols and, and stuff on those data sheets actually matter sometimes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> one though, that's uh, a little bit, annoying is overdrive when it comes to comparators so overdrive is like if you're comparing signals it's like how much how much above your compare uh, your signal that you're comparing to it uh, is your input wave 
And mm-hmm. what sucks is with with comparators, they're not they're not binary. They're even though their output is the output uh, changes depending on what the differential of your input is. So a lot of these characteristics, like the propagation delay, gets faster if you drive it harder. So you have to be mindful of those kinds of things. It's not always the same. So I understand really well now why there's logic comparators because they're just like, it always does this. And yep. the only time it doesn't do that is if it's hot or if it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> when it's over 100C or below 40C. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but um, uh, I actually... I no, pick- I didn't. I actually never thought about um, an analog comparator depending on how you drive it, your drive strength. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy with that. Uh, well, and it's 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 not like a current drive. It's a differential in voltage causes the inside to, I guess, speed up and work a little bit faster. So if you're yeah. going to design around that, make sure you're designing around the slowest aspect of it, and then if you overdrive it, you're going to get a little bit better. Because yeah. uh, when you're You have to at- do that with MOSFETs. Sorry? When your gate drive for MOSFETs, you have to pay attention to with how powerful you are driving them. Oh, for sure. Um, so, because that that how how much you your drive strength on your MOSFET gate really dictates how fast it actually opens and closes. Right. And like, if you're PWMing it, how much that MOSFET's actually going to heat up? Like, how much does it stay in the non-saturated state? Uh, yeah. How much is it in between off and on? That's yes. that's the hot hot state. The analog state <laughs> you know and and here's here's a pitfall to watch out for if you if you go and look up a comparator data sheet uh and you know the very front page is going to show you all the magic numbers that the the sales guy wants you to hear about right yes all of these really great numbers and most of the time those numbers if you dig deeper down none of them are accurate none of them like are its actual operating condition and if they say like, oh, this is, you know, the input offset is X, Y, Z, you have to look deeper down because it it's not that over temperature, of course, but it might only be that at a particular overdrive level. You mu- it, cause, And if you underdrive it, then it won't be that. It'll be slower or it'll be worse or whatever. So, yeah, keep in mind that the, that number, uh, specifically for comparators, there's usually uh, strings attached. Yeah, yeah. When we were doing, um, when I was up in in Stevens Land for uh, July last year, the uh, we were doing calculations with MOSFETs. Yep. On drive strength, making sure, hey, if we uh, are using these this drive strength, which is what the oh, what was the it was the shift registers were driving the MOSFET gates, and right. we were trying to figure out, okay, we can supply. Um, we, we actually did it through a resistor. So we knew what our drive strength would be and, um, like, okay, are these MOSFETs going to blow up? (laughs) (laughs) We, we were bandwidth limiting them by putting the resistors on there. Uh, yeah. Using the, using gate capacitance and, and like basically what is the maximum drive current that can be supplied through it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause we didn't want to, it's, it's, it's like you either, going to slow down the MOSFET, right? Bandwidth limit it. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to thrash the gate on the shift register. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, no, the, out- the output pin is just going to puke its guts. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, it's like those are supposed to be limited like 20 milliamps. So it's like, okay, you have to make sure to stay under that. So when that that output flips to, to output on, right. right? It's like, okay, that MOSFET gate is going to want to gobble everything as fast as it can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an open bucket. That, that yes. yeah, you just yeah, it'll the it'll ask for everything as fast as it can get it. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's it's, it's design considerations like that that a beginner designers don't really think about because they don't really teach that stuff in school. No, they don't. Not at all. No. And and being able to read an op amp data sheet or a comparator data sheet, they don't teach you any of that crap. Like at at college. You, you learn an inverting configuration and and they're yeah. they're like good luck <laughs> here you <Yeah>. go <laughs> actually i was talking to my buddy um who was he was really really big into analog circuits back in college and um like super good designer 
he uh, he used to actually go to Mauser and purchase his own parts before labs because he he knew what parts came in the kits and they were to be frank they were shitty parts and the oh, yeah. labs were more difficult because they gave you garbage op amps so he would buy op amps that were better suited for the circuits that we were trying to do so he would get into lab and be done in 30 minutes because <laughs> <laughs> no, because like a three-hour lab, two and a half hours was debugging why your 741 wouldn't run at 20 kilohertz, even though like all your calculations say that it should. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now uh, we've told those stories before, is like if you have an electronics lab, buy your own breadboard. Yep. Because those always wear out, and buy your own wires. If, if you can buy all your own stuff, just do that. Yeah. Yeah, especially, especially the resistors. Garbage. Hey, buy that that resistor kit. I bet mm -hmm. you. I bet you if you bought that resistor kit, it would. Uh, you know, before you went to college, you'd still have it at the end. You know. Oh yeah, get that resistor kit. Get a capacitor kit, and then get some jumper wires. I guess get a breadboard kit. I bet you someone on Amazon, some some uh, Elegoo or <laughs> Elegoo. Cute Queen. I know who you're or talking about. Sea Quick. <laughs> Or e-boots. E yeah. <laughs> are you actually reading them right now? Or are you coming yes. up with those? Because those are all really good Amazon electronic <laughs> names. <laughs> no, those are actual real ones. Those are real yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OSEP. Um, Bojack. Bo Bojack. <laughs> Rex Qualis. <laughs> I trust that guy. Yeah. Or gal. Honestly, yeah. That would, if, if I could have done that back in college, that would have helped me out a lot. There's, there's well, a back then, labs that were crap. like we say back then, it's like that was a decade. It was ago. still, you know, like 2010. Still, it's like only 10 years ago. Yeah. So it's not like the 60s or 70s. Oh yeah, but they had it way harder than we did. <laughs> way harder. But back back when we were in school, really the only way to get the stuff was maybe eBay, maybe, or Radio Shack. Right. Or if you happen to have a local electronics store mm -hmm. in your town. I guarantee you these resistors that are in my bins right now uh, are still Radio Shack resistors from a decade ago or longer. Yeah. Um, oh, Joe Knows brand. Joe Knows. Yeah, Joe Knows. Joe Knows what? <laughs> resistors, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, how about we go on to the RFO? Let's go on to the RFO. Yeah, that sounds good. You want to start this first one off? Yeah, so this is a, uh interesting concept and piece of software. I haven't got to try it yet because it's in beta, but it's called Allspice, and it is not for cooking. <laughs> it is a hardware development ecosystem is how it's um marketed as so we've we've talked about this a bunch on the on the podcast so someone's actually kind of doing it now yeah so basically it's like a work git github style workflow for hardware that also brings in simulation and design review into that process which is kind of interesting the design review is is really the big thing if you ask me mm -hmm. i mean it'll 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 show like you can look at two different revisions and it'll say, hey, R10 changed from this to that value. But you can also look at two different revisions and it'll show, you know, it'll highlight this has been deleted from that revision or this has been added, which is super awesome. Um, Parker and I were discussing that a long time ago. It was like, there's, it's difficult to do that. Like, how do you actually pull that off? And it looks like allspice.io has become compatible with Altium Designer such that it can actually talk Altium language and get that mm -hmm. kind of information. So if I was running Altium, I would totally be jumping all over this. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, mainly just because I like, I right now I use Eagle and then I use GitHub as my version control and having a way to easily see uh, this design review stuff would be really nice. Cause that's the thing is like someone will hand me like, this is the worst things. People will hand me a schematic and be like, do a design review. And I'm like, compared to what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Am I supposed to know how this circuit works by just looking at it? 
Maybe, I guess. I mean, that's the point of a schematic. <laughs> but but no, but yeah, not not entirely. There's a lot more to it than that for sure. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, I would love to get these guys on the podcast to talk about like what are the challenges they are going through with having to actually do this and like are they going to bring Eagle into this ecosystem and I I I I would assume that if they're if they're building this whole ecosystem, they've thought about doing a lot of different EDA tools, uh, mm-hmm. and it makes sense to do Altium first for a lot of obvious reasons. Oh yeah, it's 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 I huge. Mean, Altium is probably the largest, yeah, prosumer. It's a it's a professional level too. So does this also handle PCB? I don't know. I'm uh, I'm seeing. Uh, all this stuff looks like it's it's a schematic level. Yeah. Because it would be cool if it did PCB. That would be really awesome. Yeah, this, yeah, this is like great. It. I mean, I, even... Uh, I would use this as, as just a single user myself, just for my own protection, you know? Yeah. Um, this would be really, really nice. But I could see this working well with teams. And and they, they kind of really focus on design review as a big part of this, where it's like you um, commit a new schematic and then you can like pull people together and say, like, do a, do a design review of this. Yeah. So that's super cool. All right. Yeah. I think uh, we're, we're going to try to snag those guys and talk to them if possible i'm looking forward to it so the next rfo is actually a uh, a guy i met a few months ago at uh, at a convention i went out to um he uh, runs a company called second sound which um he has a patent on a new technology in uh, a chip he creates that's called the aco 160 so check out secondsounds.com to uh, um, look this over the, he's created a an IC that does frequency to voltage conversion. Uh, he calls okay. it pitch to CV because that's like industry kind of terms and musician terms. But in but in all reality, has doesn't have applications that only span audio stuff. It's all over the place, and uh, his his product is absolutely fantastic. So uh, I actually got to play it when I was at um, KnobCon back in August. Where uh, the you could actually take the um, take a, a like a bass guitar, plug it into this thing, and have it control a synthesizer. Uh, so it, you would play a note; it would take that note, uh, take the pitch, make it into a correct voltage, and then take that voltage and make it into a correct pitch on a different uh, device. Yeah, yeah. So using it as a control voltage. So the uh, the thing about it is, if you've ever tried to do that, it's incredibly hard to do frequency to voltage. But uh, this guy's got some kind of custom technology going on under, under the hood, and it's really really cool. And the biggest thing is, uh, he solved two really huge issues that uh, exist in it. So the first one is how fast it latches onto the fundamental which that's that's always been a problem like it's not particularly difficult to take a fast moving signal and read its frequency because you have a bit more information about the fundamental but what if you're talking about something that's moving a lot slower like 10 hertz or one hertz or even slower Mm -hmm. than that like you don't it'll take longer to latch on right it takes longer to latch on and you don't want to wait off like you don't want to wait a full period on a one-second signal to be able to figure out that it's one, you know? Yes. So uh, this guy's got some some uh, patented technology that actually figures that out. And uh, one of the things he also solved is, as from the music world, as your note decays, his envelope, like, hangs on to it. So... Uh, a lot of issue with these frequency to voltage converters is like a nice strong signal will latch and and you you get that but as it decays the pitch starts to go like all over the place as it's like trying to figure out smaller signals but his like holds on until effectively it just dies away to nothing so um i'd kind of like to get this guy on eventually too to talk about his um the actual technology under the hood and i think that'd be really fun 
and designing chips and stuff. Yeah, that's that's another big thing because really, gosh, who have we talked about? About uh, I mean, we Ken and Chip Gracie from Parallax, but that's uh, about it. That's about it. So yeah, it would be really great to talk more about um, the actual like what do you have to go through to get chips. So I found the PDF for that chip. Yeah, the ACO one sixty. Yeah, and it's got an address, a Houston, Texas address. Really? And that address is seriously like two miles from my house. <laughs> <laughs> no lie. But, that's but it's good. not the same address that's on the website. Oh, okay. I mean, you, you that, that might literally just be the dude's home. I I apologize. I don't remember his name at the moment. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> you stalking him right now? Yeah, I'm on. A, I'm on, a, on Google Maps. <laughs> on Google Maps, I'm looking at the. Uh, yeah, you should just business park. You should just supposed go walk over there and knock on his door. Like, you want to be a guest? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know he was from Houston. That's cool. Or well, maybe, that's, it, maybe he is. I, I think know. that might be an old address, and he moved to Florida. Hmm. Okay. He's Fl- Florida IC chip man now. Because I'm looking at the street view. And that whole business park looks empty. Oh, well. Interesting. Yeah. Well, no, it's cool stuff. So go check out the website and uh, check out his technology. Yeah. Great. You have uh, cool. you have anything you'd like to close out with? I think, I think we're done. Cool. Okay. Well, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Thanks a lot. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or configuration for the brewery Parker needs to build, that's me, tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at AnalogENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button in your podcast app. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases, and please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.